Hello, everybody, and welcome to DPS. So I've had a number of requests from patrons over the past few days asking me to unlock last week's B-side that I recorded with Bhaskar Sankara. We talked about his book, The Socialist Manifesto. It just dropped last week. And these patrons felt like that was an important episode to share with their friends and loved ones and colleagues and neighbors and family and so on. And so I've decided to go ahead and unlock that in celebration of our official launch of Season 3. Going forward, I will no longer be unlocking B-sides because the format of the A and B-sides will be changing. A and B-sides will be coming out together at the same time on the same day as one long episode. A number of other podcasts have done this for quite some time with a lot of success, and it'll give me the opportunity to ask our guests, our fantastic and amazing guests that I am very lucky to have on a weekly basis, It'll give me a chance to ask them patron questions. So join the Dead Pundit Society today at patreon.com slash deadpundits, and you'll be able to ask our guests questions on a weekly basis for the B-side. And the B-side will follow immediately after the A-side, much like the good folks do over at The Majority Report and TMBS, just to name a couple of other podcasts who do it that way with a great deal of success. And I'm looking forward to that format. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. The A-side will feature public uh, kind of entry-level discussion of topics and themes. And then the B-side will let our hair down. And uh, we'll go in-depth for the people who are ready to hear it, much like we used to do in Season 1. Our guest in just two days' time is going to be Cedric Johnson. I'm bringing him back on the podcast to officially kick off Season 3. We're going to be discussing a recent debate that he had on, you know, what else, race and class. And for the B-side, we'll be discussing reparations and socialism. If you don't already know, Cedric is one of the most prolific and insightful socialist commentators on the movement for reparations. To put it more precisely, he is a critic of the movement for reparations. He has an article from Jacobin from a few years ago. I think it's called Reparations is Not a Political Demand, but we'll be talking about that in depth in two days' time. The A and B-sides will drop on Thursdays going forward. All right, until then, everybody enjoy this unlocked B side that I did last week with Pascar Sankara. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor, coming at you from right outside the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. This is season three of the podcast. We are kicking things off in a big way. My guest today has written a pretty damn good book, if I do say so myself. I've just, I've just put the finishing touches on it myself, and uh, it's called The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. Baskar Sankara, thanks for coming back on DPS. Thanks for having me, Dan. Pleasure's all mine. I've been looking forward to the release of this book for quite some time. You are now... An author, you can add that to the many, many hats that you uh, currently find yourself wearing. But before we talk about your book, let's talk a little bit about Tribune. Tribune's a magazine that you guys recently took over in Britain. I've been wanting to get somebody from Tribune staff on the show for quite some time. We just haven't been able to coordinate schedules. But I've got the publisher on right now, so let's go ahead and get started with that. Talk to me about Tribune magazine. How did that come about it seems to already be playing a pretty instrumental role in orchestrating some of the debates on the Corbynite movement over there. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So um, the UK had a very interesting situation in that, uh, you know, you had this resurgence, of the, the left around Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonald, and a lot of the exciting things happened in the last few years. But yeah, intellectually, it really hadn't caught up. There was Red Pepper. There were some older publications. Uh, but a lot of the debate was being filtered through not very good center-left publications like the New Statesman. Um, so Tribune was a publication that was originally started in 1937 by leading members of the Labor Party, uh, those on the left of the party, like Anai Bevan, who later went on to become the kind of father of the National Health Service in the UK. Uh, George Orwell was one of his first culture editors. So it has this very long pedigree in history. But it basically had fallen off the map to the point where it stopped publishing in late 2017. So we were told or kind of insisted upon that we, we step in and try to relaunch it by uh, uh, some MPs and some others in the Labor Party. And we, um, you know, we 
decided to go for it. And we relaunched it around Labor Party Conference last year. Uh, today it has around 5,000 subscribers. We really need to get it up closer to 10,000 and make it sustainable, but it's definitely on the right uh, right track. And there's already a network of a couple dozen reading groups in the UK around trivia. And so it's playing this useful organizing role, particularly within Young Labor and these other other groups. And, uh, you know, historically, Tribune has been all over the place politically. It's been part of the kind of harder left. It's been on the soft left. There's a Tribune group of MPs still that is like not good. They're kind of anti-Corbinites. <laughs> um, but we've had, Killing I the think, brand, restored. Man. Yeah, we've restored Tribune, though, to its rightful place on the uh, left of of the, the Labor Party. A lot of exciting stuff there. I've, I've been paying attention to that since it dropped. Really excited to see that. Recent guest of the show, James Meadway, has a takedown of MMT, I noticed, in this uh, this is- latest issue. A lot of really prominent people writing over there and a lot of excitement uh, around that particular publication. Yeah, the, the print issue is fantastic. It's a really fantastic print issues, and they're, I mean, they look just as good, if not better, than, than Jacobin. It's the same design team kind of working on both or some of the same people on design. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of something where you're, you know you're producing a great product, but, you know, it takes a while to build, um, to build an audience and to build all this. And also, it's a smaller country. So at 5,000 subscribers, you can say the Tribune's almost the size proportionally of Jacobin. But, you know, as far as, far as your, your yeah, budget right. or whatnot, you know, um, it's a lot easier to run Jacobin with 40,000 subscribers than it is to run Tribune with five. That's true. That's true. It's a little tough to get it shipped over here in the United States to my U.S. listeners. I've got quite a few listeners in the U.K. and in Europe. Uh, it'd be much cheaper shipping wise over there. But you can't subscribe to the digital edition for nineteen ninety nine. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's it's nineteen ninety ninety nine digitally. I think there's actually now an offer where you could get one for for ten pounds or something, which comes up to like. Uh, 13, 14 U.S. So we are shipping internationally. Obviously, because of Jackman, we have kind of the the uh, the infrastructure to, to ship internationally. So I hope people do subscribe or at least check it out. It, it really is, I guess, quickly emerging into uh, playing a similar role to what Jackman plays in the U.S., but in the in the U.K. And I think what's even more exciting there is that there's actually a network of trade unionists and left politicians and, and whatnot that is actually pretty far broader. And more engaged than um, than what we have in the in the U.S. So with Jacobin, I always felt like we're ahead of politics, right? We're trying to build the the media to push politics along. With Tribune in the U.K., we're trying to catch up and make sure that there's there's good enough media in the U.K. that can catch up to the real politics going on. So it's a good problem to have. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, if, if there's a hard Brexit and the British economy temporarily goes to shit, at least, you know, people in the U.S. Uh, can take advantage of that weak British pound, you know, and get a pr- get a pretty affordable subscription to Tribune. So anyway, everybody should check that out. Uh, you know, the first issue was was very good. And, and the one that has just come out uh, is exceptional. Uh, so I mean that people should really check that out and support that project. This transatlantic left that's developing, uh, you know, across the across the sea and, and everywhere in between. To leave out our brothers and sisters in the islands. You know, there are islands on the Atlantic. I, I think Paul Gilroy reminded us of that. But uh, any case, let's get to this book, The Socialist Manifesto. Sounds a little familiar. There's a title out there that uh, has a similar ring to it. I can't remember uh, what it might be called. Uh, Marx and Engels might have had something to do with it. What, I, what act of hubris uh, led you to take on something like writing a socialist manifesto. But seriously, this is quite a huge undertaking. What was it that made you believe that uh, it was time to pen something as bold as the socialist manifesto in the wake of the great communist manifesto? Well, I actually wrote a book called Socialism in Our Time. Uh, then I got panic messages from the uh, my publisher's marketing team that told me that they didn't <laughs> think it would sell. So they, they actually titled it The Socialist Manifesto. And I just said, sure. Yeah, um, no, I, I actually need I, I need a better answer. This is the, the first interview I did about the book. So I need a better answer for when I do mainstream interviews because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I need some sort of uh, fake um, origin story or something like that. But, you know, that's that's a real a real reason. You know, we were trying to um, or I was trying to. I'm so used to doing Jackman projects that are actually collective, you know write a, an old school book, write a book like the old Michael Harrington books, like our old Ralph Miliband's last book, Socialism yeah, yeah. for a Skeptical Age, books that didn't just try to do a micro history, books that didn't say, I'm going to tell you about why the New Jewel Movement Grenada, you know, prefigured socialism for the 21st century, or why, you know, this or that, or a book about Sanders, 
I wanted to do a book about the entire scope of the socialist project, at least a modern of what we would call with our with our hubris scientific socialist kind of project for the last 150 plus years and talk about the highs and the lows and what lessons we could draw from it and whether there is still a feasible uh, socialism or whether we should retreat and lower our horizons a bit and still fight for something like a generous welfare state. And the conclusion that I have, of course, in the book is that socialism is indeed still a, a feasible, viable project. And, and to me, it's, it's our best you know, the best hope we have of building something, uh, you know, better on this planet. So, um, yeah, so initially it's not really a manifesto. Like the first chapter is kind of a, a, a vision of a, of a social society, what it could look like. Then the middle chapters are mostly histories of, of socialisms in practice from the, the communist experiments to third world efforts to socialism in the United States to European social democracy and the final third is probably the part that maybe you could call a manifesto, but that's just more what broad overarching lessons should we draw from that illustrative history earlier in the book. And you're taking on a, quite a monumental task in writing a book like this, particularly for a publisher like Basic. It's a it's a mass market a hardcover now. I assume it may, may be a paperback coming out at some point. But in any case, the Socialist Manifesto to the center and the center right, certainly the far right in this country and, and internationally as well, uh, is, is certainly a provocation. It's a call to uh, you know, fighting and championing real world socialism in the here and now. And uh, you have a very actionable strategy to get there. Uh, to the far left, however, it could be seen as an act of vile revisionism, having substituted the word socialist for communist in the title. Uh, and it turns out to be neither, really, in, in, in a sense. You're really carving out something very unique. The first chapter where you spell out a day in the life of a socialist citizen is very much, as you, as you yourself uh, note in the book, uh, very much in line with what uh, Lee Phillips and Michal Rozworski have done in a sense, which is to do something that many socialists have either uh, either refrained from doing or have even gone so far as suggesting that we should not do, which is to produce some kind of blueprint for what a socialist uh, world might look like you know, in the not-so-distant future. So talk to us about this chapter. It's quite comical. You talk about John Bon Jovi and uh, Bruce Springsteenism. It's it's quite uh, chuckle-worthy, I'm not going to lie. I was laughing my ass off throughout most of it. People will enjoy this chapter. It's very different in tone from the middle parts, which are, which are kind of a little bit more dry and historical, but, but gripping nonetheless. Talk to me about this first chapter. What made you, uh, what compelled you to actually uh, produce something that looked far more like a, a blueprint uh, than most of us have been willing to, to do in the last uh, several decades. Well, I think most books that are allegedly about socialism are, in fact, really about the criticism against capitalism, not the case for socialism. So with this book, I tried to actually zero in and write a, a vision of what we actually want to see. So the chapter can broadly be broken down to three different components. One is I explain or I try to explain through the use of the second person narrative about a guy who, or a woman, or whoever the you is in this, um, my, my universal subject, as I was thinking, was like one of my, you know, uh, I like to call them Indian Guido cousins in New Jersey. Um, <laughs> and if, if you're from New Jersey, you know exactly the, the type that I've, I'm saying, you know, in Edison, lots of hair gel. But anyway, yeah, that, there's that, a definite New Jersey centrism uh, here. That yeah, anybody yeah. from the uh, you know the eastern seaboard and in the United States will be very familiar of anyway. Yeah, this uh, you know this person gets a job curing, uh, bottling uh, uh, curry flavored pasta sauces at John Bon Jovi's dad's plant. So this part is actually accurate. John Bon Jovi's father actually does own a pasta sauce co company. And the pasta sauce company is famous for, it's not really famous at all, but it will <laughs> soon be famous for its uh, classic curry pasta sauce. And I did get a chance to to sample some of this. And it, it's just as awful as you would uh, you would expect. <laughs> so the main character is uh, gets a job at this plant. And I use that to explain the basic Marxist theory of exploitation. Uh, then after that, I pivot to the way in which a union can actually diminish exploitation, but not eliminate it. Then I talk about how given that, you know, firms are embedded in a wider economy with wider competitive kind of tendencies, a union can't solve, you know, much. It can improve things, but it can't solve much. So then I talk about what a 
social democracy would look like or how you know that person would navigate in a society that had a really strong labor federation that had some sort of social democratic party in power that had like sectoral bargaining uh, and things like that. So this is kind of a day in the life of your doppelganger in, in, in Sweden. Uh, then I have kind of, uh, I guess I lay out, this is probably the most original part of the chapter, is just what a transition from social democracy to democratic socialism would look like in the U.S. And uh, that's where Bruce Springsteen comes in, where in my kind of scenario, I said that, let's say it's Bruce Springsteen leading leading this broad kind of Bernie Kratt social democratic movements, what tensions will, will arise from the fact that they're trying to radically reform the state, but they're still administrating a capitalist state, they're still dependent on private profits. And then finally, what it would look like if production was socialized, and in fact, there were worker-controlled firms, and the uh, commanding heights of the economy were decommodified, and there was no longer capitalists, and this is kind of my actual day in the life of the social citizen at the end. So it actually covers a lot of ground, and that sounds very convoluted, but I promise you it was done in maybe 7,000 words or something, and it, it reads pretty uh, pretty smoothly. But my idea was basically just to, you know, people are skeptical now that socialism is technically possible. It's not just, is it is it politically impossible? Oh, what are the barriers standing our way? A lot of people are like, sounds good, but, it, you know, doesn't it not work? Or I can envision this. And socialists often reply saying, oh, we shouldn't write cook shops of the, you know, recipes for the cook shops of the future and whatever, whatever else. And I think that's completely wrong. We actually need to bring back this, this imagination, especially since it's not even like it was in the 30s and 40s when people might have not thought the Soviet Union was a perfect model, but they could at least say, look, there is another way. It's working. It's, it exists in one fifth, one sixth of the planet. Today, you know, what, what can we point to? This chapter is thoroughly entertaining. Um, it, 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 you know, it offers a flight of imagination, but in very real circumstances, circumstances that many of us have found ourselves in, whether at the workplace or in society, having conversations with our friends, neighbors, relation, various relationships with our bosses. And it addresses a, a head on a lot of the problems of socialist transition and the contradictions of, of that kind of movement. That we talk about quite a bit here on DPS. Uh, listeners of the show will be very familiar of these contradictions, pitfalls, traps uh, of socialist transition and ultimately an, an eventual rupture with capital, which is uh, what will be required. And that rupture, just to kind of take us into the next part of the book, the, this kind of historical portion of the book is really at the at the heart of the uh, I mean, it's really the uh, the bugaboo, if you will of the 20th century socialist movement, this inability to effect a rupture with capital that would retain the democratic and you know social liber libertarian essence of classical Marxism. So you know really what's interesting here is this book uh, sort of opens up into three or four separate books in the middle of, of, of the book is one of the best and most comprehensive histories of the democratic socialist and social demo democratic movement in the 20th century uh, that you're that you're likely to find in less than 100 pages. I mean, you could read Donald Sassoon or one of these other paperweights, but uh, you're getting at something here in in a very concise manner. So, talk to us about this broad swath from classical Marxism through to say, you know, Swedish social democracy in the 1970s. How did you, how did you conceptualize this? I think what's unique about your take is that you're broadly sympathetic uh, each step of the way. You're not really trying to paint villains and bad guys or hold up one group over another. Uh, talk to us about that process. Well, I think we should remember that the socialist movement came from a common ancestor, right? We were all whatever wings of the socialist movement we're, we're now part of, we were all part of these mass-based workers' parties in the 19th century that emerged from there. So I, I kind of try to explain what makes socialist politics unique. It's not a, um, a social socialist politics of a Marxist type isn't this trans-historical rooting for the underdog. Though, of course, you know, when we watch Spartacus, when we, when we like, you know, as, as people, uh, as lefties, when we like look back at antiquity, you know, of course, we're rooting for the the underdogs and, and so on. But socialism isn't really just about that moral thing. You need a, a subject. You need an agent for, for change. And that 
that agent emerged with this uh, with this working class. And the way that Marx and Engels described this working class is is not as as exploited weak people, but as people who have tremendous latent power and and people who who will one day uh, reshape the world. And and it, it really it does have this um, powerful element of of you know the last shall be first, but it's not just moralism because it's they're rooting their analysis in uh, their position in the economy and the power that they uh, they wield. So out of this united, broad-based social democratic workers movement of the the nineteenth century, there emerged different wings. Uh, there emerged uh, one that were far more principled than the question of World War One that chose the revolutionary route in in Russia, and I explained that. You know, Lenin didn't try to create a party of a new type. He essentially was trying to replicate a lot of what was present already in the German Social Democratic Party, the the biggest and broadest party. Uh, Then there were those who kind of reconciled themselves to administrating the capitalist state. You know, they still had their horizon of socialism, many of them, for, for a long time. But eventually, this this part of the socialist movement became what we would think of as as the modern social democratic movement, which is an attempt to create a functional socialism, to drop certain questions of ownership, but instead focus on making sure that you could actually uh, insulate people from the worst ravages of the market and give them more power and 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 more um, you know in, in both civil society and the workplace. So the Leninist argument was traditionally that, you know, this uh, welfare state would make workers meeker. It would buy them off and and make them kind of uh, uh, just integrated into the um, existing uh, state. In fact, what you saw in Sweden is that as workers got more rights and more security, they became more militant. They started by their own volition asking more radical questions about ownership, about industrial democracy. They, in other words, put into question the power of capital, its ability to withhold investment, the power that it had over their lives, the existing inequities, and even the super, uh, by our standards, super equal Swedish society in the 1970s. So you saw the radicalization of social democracy. And I think in many ways, by the late 1970s, by the mid-1970s, it was this radicalized social democracy that was a deeper threat to capitalists in the West than the Soviet Union, which by then had lost a lot of its luster for, for radicals and labor militants. So, you know, I do think that obviously those are very different experiments. Uh, I, I want to explain, for example, how the Russian Revolution ended up going so badly at certain points, and, and at least during the Stalinist era, why it was such a bloody disaster, but without really falling into the moralism that says that it was all predetermined or it all had to do with Marxist ideology. Or it all had to do with, oh, Lenin was was a mean guy. I didn't like democracy. You know, I, I think a lot of those things are just blatantly false. And I try to go through it while still condemning, you know, the authoritarianism of those states. I try to go through and explain how they those conditions came about. And the same thing in China and these other countries that were trying to catch up and rapidly modernize their their, their countries. You know, this was the effort by small groups of, of, of communists, of socialists to, from above, you know, lift up and develop their, their countries. And I think that a lot of what they pursued was quite at variance with the socialism of Marx and Engels or even of Trotsky, Lenin and Luxembourg. But um, uh, again, it's, it's not simple enough where you can just moralistically uh, condemn. And I also want to avoid that kind of no tr- true Scotsman thing the libertarian do. You know, you could talk to a libertarian and maybe if you really get them about in- in- inequity, they say, oh, well, this isn't real capitalism. You know, this is crony capitalism. I think socialists do the same thing. Oh, you know, that's not real socialism. Real socialism would be good. Uh, I don't think it's very convincing for, for people. So I wanted to actually, you know, talk about the high and the low lights. But ultimately, uh, the point that I'm driving home is that I don't think that the road of social democracy and the road of socialism are two completely separate roads. I think that social democracy is, in certain instances, if you do it the right way, there's obviously there's better forms and worse forms of social democracy. But it could be potentially us getting the ball to the 75, um, uh, sorry, getting the ball to the, the, the five, the 10 yard line. Um, you know, uh, getting it, getting it, getting it like, you know, 75, 80% of the way. 
uh, then needing to go forward and actually take away rights and privileges from from capitalists. And obviously, we haven't done that last part. But that seems to me a far more viable route to reaching some sort of revolutionary socialist state in the U.S. than insurrection. Yeah. I think, you know, we glossed over the German case here, which Germany, you know, the Germans, in essence, uh, really invented the mass uh, social democratic party. And I say social democratic in both senses, the social democracy, both of Marx and Lenin and even uh, Marx, Engels and Lenin, rather. But also the the social democracy of, of the post-war era, wherein, you know, these complex capitalist states, uh, you know, were, were forced to to um, negotiate with an organized and advanced working class, you know, in the in trade union uh, movement it gained, you know, its most com- uh, complete expression in a place like Sweden with uh, you talk about Olaf Palma, which is a guy that doesn't get a whole lot of play, to be honest, uh, on far left circles, uh, but certainly deserves it. Talk to me about before we move on to Palma, let's talk a little bit about the German experience. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was really incredible where you took this. Um, the German experience is kind of proof that this class that existed in the in the abstract, like they existed as workers, as people who had this position in production, could in fact be a political class and could be organized. And uh, the mass of German workers did support the German SPD. It was it was the biggest and most influential party in the country. Um, you know, in the lead up to to World War One. Um, but as you built these complex mass parties. You know, parties that had like a state within a state almost and had civic organizations, worker clubs, um, you know, sporting organization, bars, whatever else, all within this this complex apparatus that was running electoral campaigns connected with uh, uh, structurally with trade union, uh, the trade union movement connected in this kind of web of civil society, working class civil society that was incredibly politicized. So to everyone both within the European socialist movement, but also European capitalists, it seemed like an inevitability. This this massive organization and its sister organizations in other countries were going to seize power. And that as the suffrage, uh, as suffrage measures expanded, the working class vote would expand. And when workers were voting, they were voting in their class interests, which meant they were voting for socialism. This was all taken for granted. What wasn't seen, perhaps, was the way in which bureaucracies began to emerge and the structural pressures that led to the creation of bureaucracies. So you have within the trade union movement, the creation of a layer of officials that didn't have necessarily the same interests of workers, but it was very rational that a bureaucracy had to had to emerge. You had within the party the same sort of thing where as the party became more professional, as the demands became greater on it, as the administrative burden became uh, greater, it became all too easy to just defer tasks to paid professionals and to neuter the rank and file and to neuter excess radicalism that might put into danger the precarious legal state of the party and the precarious strike funds of the union movement. So, for example, workers used to always do a symbolic May 1 strike. Now, the party would maybe wanted wanted to be mandatory, but affiliated trade unions would say, Listen, we have limited strike funds. We can't waste our strike funds on these symbolic acts. If, you know, we, we actually are going to be in a bread and butter industrial uh, dispute later in the, the fall, right? We can't spend all our money or spend a bunch of it on, on May 1. So there's all these different tensions and, and dilemmas that, that arose. And ultimately, it led to the bureaucratization, the German SPD, its rightward move, and eventually even the support of the majority of the party uh, for for war credits in World War One, it's its most kind of infamous um, act. And you narrate that that uh, capitulation in terms of voting for war credits as a as a, as a kind of a, 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 a classic tragedy, right? It's, it's it's a response to a set of very real material constraints and interests that confront a mass workers' party and this large bureaucracy a trade union movement that is both structurally and ideologically far more conservative than a party, the trade union movement having more, uh, the the unions having more structural power than the party and, and the inability of radicals inside of that party to, to win over uh, their, their more centrist and reactionary comrades, even due to the, the radicals lack 
of structural power, not only inside of the unions, inside of the party, but also inside of uh, the capitalist state as well, having been far more hands off in this kind of radical refusal, this this uh, pure oppositional stance that Kautsky and some of his uh, radical centrists took um, from 1907 uh, onward towards the war. Um, and, you know, anyway, people should just really read this section. I think it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's I, well I, read. I think, I, I think that um, that first chapter and that chapter on the German SPD are probably the most well, the first chapter is the most original. The chapter on the German SPD is essentially synthesis, but uh, it's probably the best treatment, I think, in one chapter. You could definitely get all that information and right. put it together from no from several books. And, you know, the rest of it is kind of – I got some filler in there too in the middle. <laughs> it gets better at the end. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I think it, it really is important to, to know that history. And I think there's a lot of lessons you can apply today. You know, I myself am not certain under what conditions we do get involved with the capital state. I lean towards thinking that the primary role of elections today are to organize outside of the state, right, to help galvanize people, to spread our message, to build campaigns and so on. But, you know, the Sanders election uh, coming up, it really does call some of this into question because we really have to figure out a way to deprive the right from having power. Um, so, it, but does that mean the left is in power? No, I think I think we we need to be able to keep critical distance from a a Sanders government and think about you know not just consider the two the working class movement and the Sanders government as one and the same, which is tricky because the left doesn't have a have a mass base. But I think a lot of these questions come up in a, in a different form, but come up in the uh, the German SPD case. Right. I mean, it, it, we could have a debate about this in terms of arguing the merits of this side or this approach or that approach. But what I think, you know, in, in terms of reading this chapter and both sort of hearing you uh, spell out its, you know, more contemporary import, it, it just, you know, you can't help but but take away that, that, that we are still very much. I mean, it's still 1907, for fuck's sake, in the socialist movement right now in terms of these are highly unsettled questions, you know, strategically, theoretically, uh, pragmatically. Um, and it's I think it's all the more important that we return to these uh, historical lessons in a really Im- embedded in concrete sort of way. There's a way in which this kind of Marx versus Lenin versus Kautsky kind of debate plays out in a in a, in a hyper abstract and hyper theoretical sort of way. And so it's really it's it's, it's really great that we're returning to this stuff. Um, people should definitely buy the book and focus uh, explicitly on this chapter. Let's plow forward. Talk to me about the legacy of post-war social democracy, particularly in the, the Swedish case, which is the one that you focus on the most, perhaps. It is not common for people who write books like this one to both speak, you know, measured but positively, broadly speaking, about uh, Lenin in the same fashion that they'll speak positively about the post-war social democrats. One is compelled oftentimes due to the sectarianism of the of the Marxist movement perhaps to pick a side. And you really resist doing that. So talk to us about your approach there. Well, I mean, I do have a, a, have a side many of these disputes, but I, I think that I think the key is, like I said, is to avoid moralism, to actually talk about what dilemmas do these people confront. And especially in the, the Bolshevik case, they were first, right? You know, I think that they, um, they, you know, couldn't, um, you know, uh, couldn't imagine uh, some of the the difficulties that would emerge. They couldn't imagine that they would be isolated for so long. They didn't imagine that they'd be plunged into this this long and the most bloody civil war in history up to that period. Um, so it, it's kind of silly to just say, oh, they should just establish a multi party democracy and they should have did this and this. Um, you know, it's kind of its own form of um, of like pragmatic fan fiction, right? So, um, but also, I think now, as we, you know, that, that it might have been excusable for them to to fall into these traps, but it's inexcusable for us today to make a virtue out of their model and to say that uh, you know we just essentially need to form these parties that are structured the same exact way that our parties in the 1920s were structured, uh, that we need to. Uh, kind of uh, like memorize these like statements from the like common turn or whatever else. Instead, we need to learn politics or learning a method and a way of thinking about the world, not this kind of rote regurgitation. But I do think it's also really important to 
know the history. So the way that I, I see some of this is I think people like um, myself and you, we are anti-sectarians by choice. Like we both know the history of these different groups. We both have a good sense of the uh, of where the different traditions in the left come from. We both know the debates about you know Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution and and whatever whatever else. Uh, and we just take what's useful from those debates and decide to not be sectarians today. I think within DSA, there's a dominant anti-sectarianism that is often an anti-sectarianism of ignorance of being like not knowing the debates, not knowing what's useful, what's not useful. And then just just saying, oh, we all need to go get along and build, build together. So which is I mean, it's not a, the, the worst sentiment in the world. It'd be far worse if people are like, oh, I'm this hyphenated, you know, tendency and you're this hyphenated tendency. But uh, but to me, uh, there's there's real utility in learning the history, especially for for socialists, and just taking stock of it because because it's not a new or innocent idea. Like socialism has done a lot of good, but also a lot of a lot of harm over the years, and and we need to figure out, you know, what in our tradition, um, you know, is there a root cause of it in in the socialist ideal? Like I think not. Then what are the contingent factors that explain some of these failures? And we really need to uh, address and examine it. Otherwise, we'll just see that whole ground to the to the right. And it's a right that obviously believes in this original sin that any attempt to make life better for the poor, for the working class will result in some sort of uh, dystopian, you know, uh, future. Yeah, yeah. So moving away from the content of the book for just a moment, I mean, in, in kind of getting more meta, if you will, more strategic, uh, zooming out. This book, uh, you know, it's it's a mass market. Uh, it's written for a mass market in a sense. We're talking uh, to my audience, uh, you know, the dusty dorks out there who spend way too much time thinking about socialism and reading about Marx and all of that stuff. Like, you know, you and myself and all the rest of us. I'm talking to you, listener. You know who you are. Um, but this book is hopefully going to be read by by many others and certainly encountered by many others. You've had a lot of positive reviews in the kind of center left press and even just kind of more just mainstream, you know, a political style press, literary press even. Um, well, you know, I mean, this is just a sort of big open ended question, but I'm curious how you sort of see this book landing in the kind of more normie centric audience, which is to say people who do not make a vocation out of studying intensely, you know, left wing movements and socialist politics. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's kind of my core intended audience, but I don't want to dumb things down for them. I want to clearly explain. I think very little, if anything, in the book required a background of the left to understand. But I also didn't give the rah-rah typical account. Like even let's say when I'm examining the history of socialism in America, there is an easy account that just says, look, socialism is really everywhere and everything is good and everything is socialist and socialists have a history in America and we have a future and that's it. And that's a very common, like, you know, the nation in these times, the, you know, our friends, of course, but you know, that's their approach to a lot of these, these questions uh, when it is brought up. Um, so I didn't want to do that, but I also wanted to keep it clear and concise And my target audience. Yeah. Is someone who's probably a registered Democrat, uh, probably, or almost definitely a Bernie voter, uh, probably in their, they're mid to late 20s or 30s, you know, and or maybe a little bit older. And that's that's kind of my my reader. I want to, you know, sit down and and give them a book that will really explain in depth uh, what socialism is about and what its different currents are, and, and uh, you know, are about, while at the same time getting into these deep uh, debates and discussions. And I think this is the trick that I try to do in a lot of my work. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. But that's make sure that you could have two readings of the text um, that aren't, of course, contradictory. But one reading is the the core point that the mainstream audience will get. And one reading is the underlying thing that people on the far left and people engaging in kind of our own particular type of movement building uh, will will get. I do think you could do it the same um, in the same work. And, you know, in The Guardian and other places, I try to do do that to varying, you know, extents, like um, write um, – write things for both audiences at the same at the same time right right yeah i mean it's, it's a very difficult needle to thread because you're surely going to lose 
um, you know, someone. And I think, you know, at least in our case, I mean, I think what we need to start risking more often is we need to start risking losing people on our left. And I don't mean losing in terms of like, you know, uh, seeding ground to the right or to the center. But what I mean is that, you know, constantly signaling uh, to these ridiculous, dusty sectarian de- historical debates um, in order to, to, to try to you know, tie up this lo- loose end or that loose end and forsaking that mainstream audience is, is, a, is a losing strategy. And this book uh, sort of navigates that quite well. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting as – just as a, as a genre. Uh, you're inventing a genre in a sense I think for the, for, for the, for the new era, if you will. Yeah, I, I mean I, it definitely isn't going to sell as well as if I wrote – like the like, hey, look, it's kids, it's millennials doing socialism. <laughs> I like, look, AOC and yeah. and fucking like Snapchat and shit. <laughs> you know, which is, I'm not opposed to those things, but uh, it's definitely not not that. But I yeah, I wanted to 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 write a book that was like Michael Harrington's socialism book from the early 1970s, like these other books that are kind of concise, accessible, mainstream, but but ultimately kind of one big book about a subject, uh, not a monograph and not whatever else. And I must say, I appreciate uh, basic for just letting me write it and like not editing it out or not trying to make it more commercial. That's one reason why I went along with their title because they were so good with li- leaving all the content alone that I was just like, well, might as well, you know, and also I think they're right. <laughs> I think the socialist manifesto is a lot more compelling as a title than, you know, socialism in our time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's let's wrap this up the, the discussion of the book by uh, talking about, and I'll give you an opportunity to defend. And I say defend because this is again, we're you're going to have to defend this from from your left wing critics. I think the mainstream is going to dig it, uh, the Bernie Krats for sure. But defend your your wielding of this term, class struggle, social democracy. That's a risky choice uh, for for any Marxist uh, these days. And I myself sort of uh, sort of wave that banner. So uh, I don't know. Give me a give me a good response. Let us know why. What wh- what's up with this class struggle, social democracy? Okay. Well, think about uh, modern social democracy, post-war social democracy. What criticism did the left have of it? The left had the criticism that it uh, essentially took working class energy and activity, and it it took all this energy activity from the rank and file, and put it in the hands of bureaucrats, union bureaucrats, or uh, an, an affiliated. Um, politicians into electoral efforts. Uh, then once this energy was there behind broadly social democratic or democratic socialist demands, then they'd be filtered again with these tripartite agreements between the state and capital. And in the end, uh, these working class ambitions would kind of be um, be turned into like mild ameliorist policies, if even that. Uh, then the other criticism, of course, was how wedded it was to the um, uh, project of, of war and empire. So if you look at what Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn represents, it's it's not that at all. <laughs> there was no vibrant extra parliamentary socialist movement or working class movement on the streets that they're then co-opting and putting into the electoral realm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the military hates him, especially Corbyn. Like Corbyn, literally, they're using his face as target practice, British paratroopers. You know, this is kind of terrifying. Like, <laughs> kind you know, of terrifying. Yeah, so and, what, you're, and, what you're suggesting is that these movements, these uh, electoral movements are cohering a class-based movement rather than containing one. Is, they're that, is that historical one difference you're radi- pointing to? And they're radicalizing one. Yes, exactly. So it's kind of a social democracy from below. It might become over time a, a different sort of social democracy from above, but – you know, also, this is just in the book, I get into this, but this is just a, a very theoretical way to explain what's common sense. Like we as Marxists, as socialists need to jump through hoops in order to just do the common sense thing of supporting Bernie Sanders for, for president, <laughs> whereas like any broadly minding left wing person from not from our parts of, 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 of the, the left is just common sense, right? Like, oh, he's good. He's talking about good things. He's talking about fighting uh, bosses. That old like, dude. Oh, I like that old dude. Yeah, yeah that's I, I like it, right? It, right? Um, but, you know, I do think that this class struggle social democracy is, could potentially open up horizons, open up doors for a more radical socialism. Uh, you know, if we can't put free um, health care, we can't put Medicare for all on the horizon, how in the world are we going to put 
socializing production. How in the world are we going to put all these other more radical demands on the horizon? Uh, so I think we have to be on guard against, um, you know, we, do, we don't want Sanders doing CEO summits. We don't want the more corporate Democrat wing of his movement or the people who are recent converts to it, um, you know, among mainstream Democrats uh, leading the way. Um, and uh, yeah, so but we um, uh, we also, on the other hand, can't be apart from what's actually an exciting and I think once in a lifetime mass movement. And I think we have a very limited window here. Uh, a lot of us are going to be looking back at this moment 10 years from now saying we should have done more. We could have done more uh, if it you know doesn't come to fruition. But this is the biggest opening of left has had since since at least the 1970s. So you're. Historical allegory here, if you will, is kind of a it's a it's a test case, a cautionary tale. It's a it's a lesson, a set of strategies. The German SPD uh, quite successfully, at least for a time, wielded the mass strike tactic in their uh, thwarted failed revolution, you might say, which cost Karl Liebknecht and uh, Rosa Luxemburg their lives very infamously. Talk to me about our way forward today. Many people on the United States socialist left are talking a lot about non-reformist reforms as a way of moving forward. These structural reforms that retool you know, the logic of accumulation and the bonds of solidarity in favor of strengthening the capacities of workers going forward. Um, what, what are some of the ways that you see this movement uh, blossoming and uh, are there, uh, you know, s- similar paths in the German experience that we can learn from? Yeah, well, I, I think that obviously um, we need to fight for struggles and campaigns today that could actually allow us to put these more radical questions on the table tomorrow. So traditionally, there's been many movements that have both had the criticism of capitalism and the vision of a world after capitalism. That's something socialists share with anarchists. What the Marxist version of socialism were able to do, though, it was able to provide some sort of viable roadmark. Uh, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from our, our terrible society today to the society we want to see? And that was done largely through uh, creating these mass parties, creating unions, fighting for reforms, building the power of workers, and ultimately putting more radical questions on the table. So this is the non-reformist reform vision. Now, I don't say that I'm not for rupture uh, because I think that seems to imply that uh, the seeds of socialism can be built entirely within capitalism. I I think that uh, you need to uh, legislate certain acts that expropriate capital, and that to me is a rupture. Um, In the classic vision of parts of the left, the maybe you might call it a Kotskian vision, it's not actually that this can all be done through the parliamentary road, but it's more likely that at some point capitalists will say, um, no, they no longer accept the rules of the game. If uh, the rules are being rewritten by a radical new Congress or parliament. So in Finland and other places where the radical left has won parliamentary majorities, the right has um, chose the path of bringing the struggle back into the streets. And in that case, I think something like, uh, so can you imagine, in other words, reconciling visions of, of a parliamentary road to socialism and visions of a mass strike um, scenario? So I think it's still super um, important to actually have the democratic mandate. And I think in a cohesive uh, democratic societies with high degrees of legitimacy. That's the only way. Uh, I think that's all we should be talking about and thinking about. But I don't rule out entirely uh, the idea that there won't be, you know, um, strikes and disruptions and other things that are, are primarily outside of the realm of, of, uh, of parliament. And by parliament, of course, I mean representative body, not just parliaments. Right, right. So it seems that there, you know, the the lessons that you draw out in your book, if I might sort of write my own conclusion here, you can tell me if you think I'm on to something or if you agree or disagree, is that a lot of the dilemmas, the stumbling blocks faced by the the act, I started to say protagonists, that's not always the case. They're sort of tragic uh, figures, sort of figures of uh, Greek tragedy here. Um, they were running up against real constraints constraints that we will be running up against as well. And so their stumbling blocks are our lessons 
And so there's a way in which you, you sort of have to do both at the same time. We have to engage in parliamentary and electoral politics without falling prey to electoralism and without falling prey to the conservatizing forces of bureaucracy and managing a capitalist state. And at the same time, we have to engage in, you know, uh, struggle, mass struggle um, in broader society and in the workplace, but without uh, falling prey to this kind of trade union consciousness as well on the other side that really doomed the SPD in many senses. And so there's a really a both and approach. Um, and it's incredibly complex that I sort of summarize that that uh, the broad sweep of that <laughs> somewhat. Accurately. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that. I think there's a lot of lessons to be drawn and a lot of different tactics. I think that the key today, though, is that we are in these broad struggles for reforms. And this people who say, oh, winning these broad reforms, winning these struggles is impossible. Convincing workers these reforms are good is impossible. But then they also think it's possible to have this kind of, you know, luxury space communist communism or like idiots. You know, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. If you can't get uh, if you can't get Medicare for all, you're not going to get you know, whatever space yeah. communism. Yeah. 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 All right, look, I'm on my, I'm on my best behavior today. Okay. I need you to, I need you to not <laughs> provoke me to go, go in against uh, some of these more, uh, you know, uh, utopian minded folks. But I think it's a really important insight, you know, to say that there are a lot of people who will forsake something like a cra- class struggle, social democracy, because they say it's not radical enough. It doesn't go far enough. Uh, but if we can't, you know, if we can't sort of uh, get our foot out the door, how do we expect to make it all the way across the sea, if you will? Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and, and as and as I kind of show in the book, and uh, I do think having an imagination is also really important because we don't want a segment of DSA can go in the complete opposite direction, just become kind of, um, you know, not DNC hacks, but kind of congressional progressive hawkish hacks, right? Yeah. I right. once had radical ambitions, but now I... Uh, now, I, I, I don't. I only care about maintaining our majority in, in Congress or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Slaves to pragmatism, if you will, uh, the kind yep. of bureaucratized uh, conservatism. Yeah. Whereas we are pragmatically trying to change what's pragmatic, right? Yeah, I like that. That's great. That's a great way to end up. You're a busy guy. You got a lot on your plate. Everybody check out Tribune magazine. Uh, subscribe to Jackman, of course. I think just my own little pitch here. I'll give you a. I'll give you. I'll give you a pitch here. I think a lot of people out there presume that because uh, Jacobin and hell, Dead Pundit Society, and some of these other names are out there, and we're sort of in your newsfeed all of the time, and you see us on Twitter, that we are we're fine and we're good to go, and we don't need you. That's not true, people. <laughs> uh, we're all out there. We're all struggling, and so everybody should do the best they can to support Jacobin. Um, support Tribune, support all of these projects. We need a rich and robust uh, left media eco left media ecosystem. If we're going to, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to try to, 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 to forge this socialist transition that, that we've been talking about for the past hour. So, yep, absolutely. It's all in razor thin uh, margins. <laughs> yeah, no question. We're all sort of dancing, dancing on these margins and uh, everybody should support these projects. Even the ones that seem to be bulletproof, uh, we're all out there. We're struggling. We're hustling. And uh, on that note, Baskar Sankara, I'm going to let you get on with your day and continue that hustle. Thanks for joining us on DPS. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, man. Baby, baby, baby.